I've made some adjustments. I've expanded a little bit the outline you have, but the outline will still basically follow. It's called Same Gospel, Different World, Sharing the Good News of Jesus Christ in the 21st Century. And if you know anything about me, is one thing that you would, would strike you is I love journals. Why? Because, you know, after when people look back in history, I love history, but inevitably we can't help but be impressed by knowing the ending of the story. We tend to reinterpret facts based on what we know the story to be ending. So what I love about journals is that people don't know the end of the story. So now we know where they really were at the time. And I have a passion for all things Jewish. I love all things Jewish. And so one thing here is I've read virtually everything available in English and French uh, during the time of the, 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 the Nazi period of journals and things that are available. And I've got to tell you one thing that comes up again and again and again in the journals, starting out in Germany in the 30s as things get worse, you know, week by week, month by month. But in the ghettos, you know, Lodz and Warsaw and all the great ghettos, uh, Lvov and things, the same thing happens everywhere at some time. What are we going to do? And the old people, people look like me, would tell the community, look, we have a thousand years of wisdom. This is sadly, as the Jewish people, we are not strangers to persecution. So follow our lead. We know what works. But young people were saying, and they were right, it was, you know, it was the, the spirit was upon them. They said, Hitler is different than anything that has come before. This is a quantitative, this is not the same. A thousand years have changed. We've never seen anything like this. Later on, it was summarized beautifully. Until this time, you know, the question is, you shall not live among us. Now the question is, you shall not live. But, it, but the point was, the, the community was torn, do we follow the wisdom? You know, people think, look, it always looks that way. But you know, it's Ecclesiastes. You know, it's every, nothing's new. It's the same old thing. Follow the tide and true. How do you deal with persecution? You know, here's what you do. Follow the tri Or do you actually try a new way? Well, there are good and bad news with this in history, is people who followed the old ways, the old uh, people look like me and things, are sadly all gone. A thousand years of Jewish life was removed. For those who love all things Jewish, I love the great academies. We, think, you know, we weep when you think of Vilna and things. These are the great of, of Talmudic learning and like Sometimes in an afternoon, a thousand years of learning and things gone. It was all gone. But there was great news. I had the privilege of working with someone for the past 30 years whose family left Germany while there was still time. And this was a hard decision. Why? Because it wasn't cheap. I mean, things had changed. They had a business they had built up for generations. And you had to bribe everybody. You know, basically, you couldn't take anything with you, basically. You had to bribe left and right and, and to, get, to get things. But you know, praise God, they're all alive and well to the grandchildren, to great-grandchildren. You know, they're thriving everywhere from Israel to New Zealand to here in America. So there was a happy ending to mention Israel. So the point was something had dramatically changed. And those who saw that change and ran with it thrived as a never before. Never has Judaism been in a better place than it is today since the time, you know, the destruction of the land. And so I'm suggesting if something like this has happened now, sociologically in the West, and if we know this, Instead of going back, well, here's what we've always done. Oh, this will pass. Or is there really a game changer with, with, with hope? If we know what has happened, then we know how can we react with confident assurance. So, uh, you know, Jesus said, read the signs of the times. 
He said, read the signs of the times. So let's talk about this very specifically. First of all, what is this drastic change? Well, in technical terms, people talk about the move from heteronomy to autonomy. And what that means, it's the idea of sociology here, but it's, uh, it's heteronomy. We don't know most, if you remember any of your Greek, if you study Greek, nomos is law. And heteronomy simply means, how do we figure out what's right or wrong? We have some point of reference that we refer to. There is a point of reference to which we refer. That's called heteronomy. Is we always can refer to something if we don't know what do we do. There's something outside of ourselves that can be a point of reference. And a classic thing is, think of it this way as an example, is imagine you're a kid, and like I they used to board, I don't think they exist anymore, board games, but they used to when they were a big thing, like Monopoly and things like that when I was a kid. And sometimes you go you go to the old folks and things, and they'd have a board game you hadn't seen before, but even if you don't know how to play, you would say, I know there are rules. You know, I don't have to say, you know, I know there are rules to this. And we could say, well, well, sometimes it could be like real religion, we could have them written down. Or sometimes we say, well, why don't, we can't find the rules, but there's certainly something must have played it. You'd ask your brother, have you ever played this game? How do you do this? But that's the idea of heteronomy, is we know that there are rules. And we, how do we find those rules is the whole question. And this is how we work from the beginning of human history to about 50 years ago. And we're going to see what, what, what that looks like. So what was the source of the outside law? Historically, in the earliest times, in primitive, how do we know it in earliest times? Because you look at places like New Guinea and tribes who've never had any contact, sort of Amazonian places. Originally, the outside, where do we look outside, was the way of the ancestors. You know, we do what things of our ancestors have always done. And that's always the point. What do you do? What is people, matter of fact, every, every law code in the West is based on what we call customary law, meaning basically. I do not know my own strength. I must use these powers only for good. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so I find out where, okay. So the way of the ancestors would be basically, and that like all codes, for example, customary law basically meant when a new problem came up, you say, what has happened in the past when this happened? What did we do when somebody else burned somebody's field? What did the answer, you know, what has always been done? That's the basis of the common law. Even Roman law, which uh, worked that way. Later on, people tried to come up with an explanation in reverse, like reverse engineering, how this made sense. So that's not how it started. People simply said, what have people always done? Okay, that's the way of the ancestors. Now, then we came to the way of the gods. And one of the advantages of the way of the gods is the ancestors are dead and gone. And what do you do with newer stuff that comes up? And gods, you know, often they, they, they are alive. You know, we're talking about across, you know, all the world. Gods are alive, so they can actually take action and things. So we have, but there's still something outside of us that there's a point of reference. Like the Romans had phos and nephos. You know, Roman gods didn't care much about regular morality, but there are certain things that were just, would destroy the world. You can't, for example, killing your father is something the gods have to take action. We can't have a world where that goes on. That kind of thing. They're sort of, you know, these, uh, that's what we get. Uh, so we have that kind of notion. The way of the gods. And finally, later on, we have uh, the way of history. Later on, with the Enlightenment and things, people still were having trouble under accepting traditional faith, traditional religion. But they said, you know, there is a point of reference. You know what it's like? Like, I'm an accountant. We're big on trends. That's what you use for national statements, is you're trying to see which way have things been going. That'll tell you something of direction. You know, which way have things been going? 
So the idea here became the notion of progress, scientism and things, is things get better. It's sort of an evolutionary idea. And therefore, whatever the direction is, keep following that direction is our outside point of reference. Keep following that direction. That's how we define which way to go. So from the way of the ancestors to the way of the gods to you later on, people will say, well, progress. You know, the idea there's certainly thing we see humanity is working in a certain direction. Okay. So what happens here, and therefore religion had a very important role in society. Religion, that's why societies have religions. When I was a kid, we still talked about every society, what religion it had. That was just basic, because it, it, it wasn't a matter of personal belief. Most religions aren't like that. It's a matter of here's the code society followed. What's their point of reference? You know, what was the, the, uh, the, the religion they followed? So religion was considered really important because it reinforced societal values. It was essential. Can imagine a society without religion because that's what held us together, what we could all agree on for right and wrong and making really, really hard decisions. Okay. And that's why Voltaire, hardly a fr no friend of Christianity, but he really believed in God. He said, if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him. Saying we need a point of reference. Without a point of reference, there is no hope. We have to, if God didn't exist, he said, we would have to invent him. This was the traditional, so even with the Enlightenment, people kept on saying, we have to have like the, the direction of history, there has to be something like this. But the opposite of heteronomy, meaning there's a law outside of us, is autonomy. Nomos, law, and autonomy, we are a law to ourselves. Remember the example I used with playing Monopoly? If you find the game in the attic, how do you play this? Look for the rules, etc. You're about, in my day, you can't do that anymore. When I was a kid, they just send you out in the summer to go away for the day and you come back at night. You know, and you go out and make up games and stuff. Yeah. And so if we're in a field just saying, okay, we got a ball or something, we don't have, we don't have a baseball bat, we have, what are we going to do? You make up a game. Now, we didn't have to figure out what the rules of the guy, we all understood we're making it up as we go along. And it's just getting buy-in. No, there is no game. We're making it up. We understand that we're just a bunch of guys. You know, it's a summer day. We all get kicked out of the house by our, our mother wants a moment of peace. Okay, and we're doing guy stuff. You know, that's what, so we're just going to, let's, let's make a game. We've got a ball. What can we do with it? And you make it up. So autonomy works that way. The idea is there is no ultimate moral source of reference. We're, we're basically agreeing to the rules. We're making up the game. How did this happen? And the two, uh, one of the great crises that led to this uh, was, was the big crisis like, was the First World War. It was basically what kicked over the structure. It's hard for Americans to uh, In France, for example, over one and a quarter million young men were killed in the field in battle during the First World War. To give you an idea, in England, you had three quarters of a million men were killed, Flanders Fields, I think, in the First World War. To give you any idea, is that's with France and England, it's almost as much as every American ever killed in every war. For much smaller countries, the trauma was unbelievable. And here's what traumatized people, what changed the world in, in Europe. For nothing. It was for nothing. When they came up, and they just people, they send people into machine guns, line after line. Not to mention the hundreds of thousands of maimed and things that came back. So basically, there's a crisis of all the traditional institutions. You led us here. <laughs> you led us to this slaughter. And from then on in Europe, things will never look the same again. People begin, this, you've lost all credibility. You did this, was the idea. But it still comes into full force. Well, there's a delay. 
because we have two great secular religions that try to take up the, the slack. And again, secular religion means basically you still have to have this outside point of reference. One was National Socialism and the, the Nazis. And their view was this view of social Darwinism. You know, their basic view is we could see that there's a natural thing, how nature progresses, how it's survival of the fittest, et cetera. You know, this is the natural way. We see which, and we can help things along because we know the right side of history. You get rid of the inferior, you know, things, you get like, like animal husbandry. This is the sick view, but this is the view, this is, this is a progress. See, this is, but we do have a point of reference. We know that things get better. And the other was, um, was communism, which is one of the forms that Marxism is like Christianity has all sorts of different branches. But you know, the, 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 the form that eventually wins out most is communism form of, of, of it. And with communism, it's about economics. You know, this, this, we have an inevitable movement towards equality. It's inevitable. Matter of fact, one of the reasons Marxism was a history, was, was, was religion, is the sense they believed in the inevitability of the change. No matter what we did, that's what made it religious. It cannot help. This is what will happen. It's a fact. This will happen. We do something, we do nothing, it will happen inevitably. So what goes wrong here with, well, thank God, uh, National Socialism was wiped out. <laughs> I mean, with, to no one's regret. It's gone forever. However, communism moved on, but something happened by the 1970s that people say, oh my Lord, it's dead. There are no true believers left. It's like the, in languages, the last native, no one actually believes anymore. No one believes in the inevitability. They believe in certain principles of, the, of social justice and things, but no one actually believes the religious element, that this is outside. No matter what we do, this is a fact we can build our lives around. We know where the world is going, and so we can align ourselves to that outside fact. And another thing that happens is the sexual revolution of the 60s that our bishop so eloquently talked about last night. Wow, uh, that really called things in, into question. So what's happened? So the sphere of religion suddenly changed. There's a, a book, a revolutionary book, called The Disenchantment of the World by Marcel Goucher. It was written, uh, translated in all the major languages. But his basic point was, you know, religion is completely upside down now. It used to be religion was something we did together. It was communal. Religion is now a hobby. We look upon it simply as something you do, like stamp collecting. You know, some people just get into religion. You know, they, that's what they do. The idea that has any, something we do as a society is completely gone. It's completely, so we've turned it on its head. Instead of religion being how we see the world together as a people, it becomes, no, some people do this as a hobby, a harmless, we hope, a harmless hobby. Okay, so fundamentally changing that. And also the attitude towards the past changed. Uh, we can see this now with the current iconoclasm, is one thing that happens with this is, you know, funny, when you study medicine, how much time do you think you spend studying uh, Greek medicine? Do you, uh, uh, you'd say, well, no, it's a bunch of nonsense. They have nothing to tell. There's no value in what happened before. With, with the social, natural sciences, you don't bother, well, what did they believe in 1800? What can I learn? No, you can't. You just look where we are now. All that counts is where we are now. Everything else is a waste of time. So by this view is, frankly, nothing in the past has value. If anything, it only has negative value. The only thing it can tell us is what not to do. So there's suddenly a dehistoricization, is that instead of history having a natural projection, history is pretty useless. Actually, if nothing else, it gets in the way of, of really facing our situation and dealing with it. 
Okay, so it's essentially negative. Okay. Now, this has changed, brings us to how does this change society's attitudes towards religion, the way society we live in? First of all, again, the, the number thing, instead of seeing religion as something that brings us together, faith is something that brings us together for community, it's looked as divisive. Why? Because since there is no external reality, people who claim there is, when they try to impose their hobby on you, just divides people. So instead of looking at this as a unifying force, suddenly, we can't imagine a society without religion. It becomes, no, religion is sort of vaguely dangerous. I mean, it's fun as a hobby or something, but if people start taking this and starting to, whoa, that's uh, no one's safe. The second thing is, it's no longer considered an important part of individual identity. The reason we have freedom of religion in the Constitution and things is there was a time when religion was considered so vital to who you were as a human being that to ask someone to violate that was unspeakable. It would be wrong. That's the most deep, the most sacred thing in a person was this belief. To violate that violated their very humanity, their dignity. That's been replaced by political ideology. Since religion is just a hobby, that's why there's no problem now of saying it's not important to go to church. I mean, in a, in a church is, you know, go, you know, going to liquor store. Now, that's important. Uh, but church, you know, you know uh, and why demonstrations, of course, are thing. This is not disingenuous. Politics are what bring us together, theoretically. And therefore, that's really important that we, you know, come together for political things. Because politics are what unite us as a society. That's, but religion is just, religion is just a hobby. You know, why would we take any risks for that? You know, that's, so that explains the, why they treat them differently. And also there's a, uh, also something else that turns skepticism for mediating structures. That's a technical term. What it means is, for most of human history, I still grew up like this, an individual was ensconced in all sorts of supportive groups. Family. And client and family, boy, I come from a traditional society. It was a big thing. It wasn't just your immediate family. I mean, it was all your blood. We used to talk about blood. <laughs> I mean, I, when I was a kid, I know you could have a second cousin of my dad shows up and needs something, and he's family. You never met the guy, but he's family. You know, family, this kind of thing is interesting. We also have church uh, and actually country. There are basically things in this broad world, something that could be me, that I could identify with, someone, my group. And under this view, with autonomy, their intermediate opportunities are simply structures of oppression. It is basically, it's the individual is the ultimate point of reference. Therefore, anything else that just risks trying to uh, get in the way of their self-actualization. So that's why we look upon organized religion. Say, well, religion is one thing, but organized religion. Whoa, whoa. One thing you have, you have, have your religious views, whatever. But you know, organized religion, that's getting a little weird because intermediate structures are always a danger. Like even the family now is a danger to children, right? They'll impose their values on you. They'll stop you from having your, discovering you know, your true sexuality, all these things. You know, family is a danger. Every, so we're in a, a world that hates intermediate. Uh, people heard of the book uh, Bowling Alone? Yes. That's very famous. You don't know, but the idea, better than the book, but the idea itself is really sound, is the guy said, look, when I was a kid, he said bowling was a big thing in America. Everybody did it. What happened to bowling? And what he was shocked to find out was bowling is more popular than ever. What happened is why we used to notice it, it was something we did together. You bowled in leagues and things. It was something you did together. And now we have a society where things we used to do together we now do alone. Like church. 
when I grew up, the idea that you just sit at home and watch a preacher or something, or you couldn't have watched a preacher when I was a kid, I mean, you heard him on the radio or something, was unthinkable. I mean, church is something you did together. Now it's looked upon, hey, this is something I just basically about me, and if I can go somewhere and it actually adds something, that's great, but it's hardly this. These are how our society has changed. Okay. So now let's get to, I just wanted to get, I think this is, I'm saying like those young people in Germany saying, We've never been in a society. In, in our, all of human history, we've never been to a place like this. For example, if somebody had told me as a, young, as a young person, when I was still young, that the family would be gone as a basic instrument, of, as a basic structure of human society, I would have thought, you're out of your mind. That could never happen. It is. It's gone. You know, it's, it's not considered a, a, a serious structure anymore in the West. It's just that if you want to do it. Having a baby, having it with a, in a family structure of mother, father, well, if you want to, that's one choice. Okay, so how do we react? How, because it's always a good day for the gospel. And actually, I think we're going into better times than ever. But we have to know. So this is not at all negative, by the way. I believe God is in control. And boy, and things are getting better. But we have to be, again, like those people who su survived the Holocaust, is saying we have to take into account that we can't be playing things the way we've always played them. How do we deal now? So this is all about positive. I think the church will be in a better place in all of its history as a result of this. So where are we? First thing is why we need to use the Petrine and the Pauline models, which this diocese is. I think this diocese, honestly, is providentially called to a place in the broader church that's going to really set some leadership. Let me tell you one of the differences. Sometimes people don't understand how I explain Pauline as far as I see it. Being in both, since I'm at the cathedral, I'm you know, with, with, uh, uh, with, with, uh, with the greenhouse, is two types of colonization. All of you who are Anglos, when, you, when people came over and created New England, what they meant to do was simply take and make England over here. It looks even to look like the, the, uh, the commons, everything. They wanted to make a little England. And that because they were just an extension of England. Now, those of us who were French, the world was very different because economically, first of all, who would ever want to leave France and who would ever want to live in Canada? I mean, uh, <laughs> I say this to French Canadian, but I mean, seriously. Uh, <laughs> so the only... I'm a French Canadian, hello. But I, mean, I, say, I said to my dad, because he was very proud of things, I said, if we're so smart, how come we got Canada? <laughs> this cold, snowy place. Okay, but in any event, uh, you know, the, the point we have here is the French were about the fur trade. And this is really important to, I think, modern evangelism. The fur trade meant, is you know, the last thing in the world you want to do is drop somebody from Paris in the middle, in the, in the, in the middle of Canada and say, find otters. <laughs> Dude, there are people who know all about this. So you build on existing structures. This is the genius. I mean, we've seen this. You know, I've had the privilege of working years you know, with, with seeing William do this. Is you find someone who's coming to the Lord and say, wait a sec, they have friends. It's like the woman at the well who goes back and tells the whole town. They have friends, and you build on those networks. You don't try to replay, come in from the outside and just parachute in. Is you say, we're going to have to, especially if we're going to reach truly the marginalized. We're going to have to do things like that. So it's not a substitute for the Petrine. But you need, there depends on what, there's a place for New England, obviously, but there's also a place for Canada, you know, in the sense of how do, we, how do we build structures that bring people together, building on existing human networks, which how the gospel has always uh, traveled that way. So we're going to have to, and why it's so important to have the St. Paul's approach in with this is the real danger of mission, it seems to me, is parachurch. Because one thing is the, we'll come back to this theologically, God's gifts are in his body, the church. 
That's where we find God. If we try to, to separate the message from his body, to disembody, to disincarnate, it, it, it falls like a house of cards. So the beautiful thing, the genius of this, it comes from God, is the idea with, even though we have these groups, somehow they are really connected to the actual church. Everyone in this diocese, his, Stuart is our bishop. It's not like, oh, we're doing this in the same. No, no. We are absolutely, you're as much the bishop of every single person in the greenhouse as anyone in, in, in the cathedral or anyone at uh, Light of Christ or something. You're, you're the same bishop. So the idea, it's a way that can have the suppleness to get around to these new positions, but sacrifice nothing about the union of the connectedness to the church. Because our salvation lies be connected to Jesus. And we find Jesus in his church. How do we have a, a real connection to the church? The next thing we have is, we, we're, frankly, we're going to have to find new models for financing certain types of ministry. There's always going to be a place for, like we have at the cathedral and things. We have to have those kind of places, like the great monasteries. But you know, part of how we used to finance churches, when, when religion was heteronomy, when I grew up, everybody, it was taken as a given, you had to belong to a religion. People would you're going to get a job. People would say, you must be dishonest, you must be a bad person. We even had religion for people who didn't believe in God. Unitarians, actually, that's the function they played. You could be religious and go to a place, but you had to belong to a religion. So that meant when we used to set up churches, like when St. Barnabas was set up, what they did is say, look, churches are like grocery stores. Everyone needs one. So you just go and say, hey, if we have a new area, we'll just put one up, and then people who will meet their religious need there. I don't have to tell you those days are gone. The idea that this everybody needs a church is gone forever uh, because that's based on heteronomy. That it's a societal choice. Okay. And, oh, by the way, this is a footnote. I shouldn't talk too much in footnotes, but this might help. It's actually good that it's that way because sometimes we're really, we're really put off by the fact that sometimes in traditional faith, it seems really shallow. Because it was. Why? If you believe that, that this represents society's views, well, you don't choose to be an American or to speak English or anything, right? That's the choice is made for you. So therefore, we had to define faith. The trouble, it came with the Roman Empire once we became coterminous with the empire is suddenly we had to redefine Christianity in a way for, that would encompass people who, frankly, weren't very religious. Well, there was, oh, if I'd be a Christian, whatever. You know, get baptized, show up at church once in a while, don't, uh, don't become a serial killer. You know, I, I, we have a very, well, that's optional if you're the emperor. But in any event, uh, <laughs> but you, you get what the idea is. is So actually, part of the, the reformation that we we're looking upon is a lot of what we look at as corruption was simply the fact that a cultural church has to be that way. By the way, if you don't know, this is the story of Islam. Most Muslims are not religious. It's an ethnic thing that you do. Uh, most, I had a friend years ago when they had the Bosnia thing, and a really good friend of mine, he said, well, our church, this is the Connecticut, is bringing some people in. And we're, we want to get them, you know about Muslims and things. It's a French thing. You know, we have, it's a big religion in France. And saying, you know, okay, what do you know? Saying, Bosnians aren't religious. I mean, they're Muslims. That's how they bury people and, you know, big life. But they don't go to the mosque except for some really religious people. And he came back later and said, Stephen, we're so embarrassed. We got it all set up for them. And they said, <laughs> why would we do that? OK. So that's why we had this. So the good news is that kind of, but the bad news is we can't, basically, I'm a business guy. You know, as a CPA, church is no longer wholesale, it's retail. That's actually good news for the gospel. The real gospel has always been retail, about meeting the Lord Jesus Christ personally. But that means, as far as financing and things, we can't expect that we're just going to have hundreds of people gathering everywhere. That's not going to be true. We're going to have smaller groups of Christians, and it's no longer going to be possible always to have enough money really to support full-time ministry. 
we're going to have to find different complementary models, not replacement models, complementary models of bivocational and things and other things that people can get out there and do this. This is just a fact. We just have to be more supple on the ground. Another thing we need is we need to integrate, I'm sorry, the next thing is um, some more practical approaches to theological in, in education, something dear to my heart. First of all, I think most people in the evangelical world has now accepted this. Imagine somebody in Germany, one of our American bases in Germany, and he's there with his family. He loves it, and he loves the German language. And he said, I, would I think I really like to teach German. I like to like, go and be a German professor. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to America to study German you know, at the University of Michigan or something. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're actually now learning German every single day. Everything's reinforcing this, and you're going to actually pull completely out of that to, to study it in theory. And so it's not that you, you, of course, you need the technical, no question, we need the technical education, but the idea that we would pull people out, send them away somewhere for three years, and move them out of ministry is a really questionable idea. You know, we need to be educating people while they're doing ministry. One of our things is deploy, then train. <laughs> is this is really have to think differently about the, well, I'll get prepared for snow. We, part of that preparation is actually living. Like at the cathedral with our people, they're working with our bishop. They're seeing what it looks like. It's incarnate instead of, let's go off and talk about it in theory and then come back and tell people we know all about it instead of, unlike those people on the ground who are actually doing mission. So we have to find a way that really doesn't ever pull people out, that gets them, the, they need to have solid formation. That's what really Gregory House is about. SSP is trying to give people ways of getting a solid formation without saying the traditional, well, just go somewhere else and come back with an education. Uh, and meanwhile, you've missed four years of ministry. And also, you come back expecting to be the boss, that, you know, because I have all of this, that, uh, of course, unlike those, those, those people who are just sitting here doing ministry, I'm now an expert. I'll come and tell you all about it. That's why I love, we have a bishop who's actually a rector. <laughs> Remember, we had that talk before you were a bishop, and saying, we need to have bishops focused like the early bishops. People are actually... Pastors, not scholars, pastors. Scholars are a plus, but nothing more than a plus. Another thing is we've, we have to replace the secular academic model. You see, one, let me tell you something you might not know. Is in the Middle Ages, there were four places you go to the, their equivalent of, of graduate school, okay? Is, is, is basically good theology, you could do law, you could do philosophy, and medicine. However, we also had seminaries. Why would you have this and have a seminary? The seminary is profoundly different. It gave you all sorts of technical information. But seminaries, the very, mean, the very etymology, were places that you, was formation. It, it wasn't just academics apart from formation. The idea is what we're doing is we're not just forming you with, with information. This has to be integrated. You're actually living this out. Seminaries always involve actually praying together, like what we do, what Nate, uh, what you're doing, that kind of thing. That's what seminaries should look like. We should be talking about these things, but we should be worshiping together, this kind of thing. Now, we wanted to be respected by the world. And the world, frankly, as they stopped to believe in religion, they thought it was sort of silly, the kind of stuff, you know, you know, praying and that kind of stuff. But they could understand you could make anything academic by simply studying it objectively. You could study astrology. If I told you I was an astrologer, I'm not, you'd say, boy, he must be pretty stupid. But if I told you, no, actually, academic, I've studied the history of astrology, their mathematics, the, you know, uh, you, you could do that. And we've actually accepted, a lot of our seminaries are actually training grounds for unbelief. We want to prove that we can be as neutral as anybody. 
And so I, I love one, a guy at a Catholic seminary, I couldn't believe it, a good friend, friend of mine, Pat, Pat Hardiman, good Irish name. He's, he was very proud of the fact, he was taking some courses, he wasn't going to be a priest, he had a family. But he said, you know, my New Testament professor is a Jew who's an atheist. This shows how neutral they can be. Now, imagine if you had a Department of Holocaust Studies at the university and you said, I'm so proud that my professor is a Holocaust denier. <laughs> or how about something with African-American studies and saying, yes, and I, we, have, we want to make sure that we have people who are white supremacists. and you know, we, want, we want to show the whole academic. Are you kidding? When we come to this thing, we start with some presuppositions. We have to be unashamed about the fact. There can never be a place, oh, I want serious academic training. And I went to secular institution. But I think, but it can never be separated from the fact is there can never be a doubt that this is all about the living person of Jesus Christ and saving souls. Ever. Not for one second can that be. It's not like, well, let's pretend this is, no. There's no pretending about it. This is a fact. And we need to know about challenges to that faith. But this is not like, let's evaluate them. No, we've done that when we turn to the Lord Jesus as our Lord. And so we have to, now people aren't going to respect you that way. They say, oh, then you're a Bible college as opposed to, but no, no, no. We have to be unashamed in theological education of saying, you know, you know uh, Anselm, the one, really the founder of scholasticism, said that we have to believe to understand. You know, we can't really understand. As Paul said, you know, Jews, he said in the synagogues, read the same scriptures we do every Saturday. But it's, he said, like this, a veil. The veil only turn, moves when we turn to the Lord. So the idea of neutral education is, is crazy. And finally, the last thing, it seems to me, is we need seriously to restore traditional moral theology. People need to know something about it. Because you understand, uh, but first of all, you know the word morals and ethics come from the same roots in the sense that one's Latin, mores, and the other is Greek, ethos. But they mean the same thing. It means normal, what people normally do. So norms, how do you set norms? That's what they mean. And until basically the 18th century, and now it's almost universal, no one spoke of ethics. It was Greek. We tend to prefer Latin words. We spoke of morals and moral theology. But what happened is the whole basis of Christian moral theology is God. It's like Hochman, the Old Testament wisdom, the Logos. You know, there is a plan to the universe. And moral theology is about discerning that plan. God has made those determinations. We're trying to figure them out. They wanted a more neutral term in a post-religious world. So they chose ethics to mean we're not going to start with an assuming there's something here. So often modern ethics means how do we create something? Like how do we create make up a game? And so if we work in those categories, most people, even in seminaries, are using textbooks and things that are based on something that's fundamentally unchristian. The notion we're making this up instead of saying, look, there is a truth. God has made decisions. Christian ethics is all about finding out. We're not making decisions. We're finding out what are the decisions God has made and how do we apply them. So I think we need to really uh, reinvigorate traditional moral theology, which unashamedly says yeah, that's the underpinning. There is an answer. Our only job is to find it, not to make it up, not to decide. Another thing is we need deeper training for members. You know, it's funny. If, if you go into foreign language, for example, if you come here, let's say you come from Canada, you're a French speaker, and you come here, is you speak French at home, the trouble you realize is that's the only French your kids will ever hear. It means everything in the society around them, nothing supports that. Nothing. Everywhere they go, they're going to hear English, everything. Nothing will support what they, that's all they have got. Now, we used to live in a world like raising kids here. Do you have to worry about, gee, I wonder how my kids are going to learn how to speak English? Duh. 
Everything, everything here in America supports English. Where they go to school, they play with their friends, they look at the TV, everything reinforces. That's how society used to be. Society used to accept a basic Christian, whether it be learning Bible stories, and, you know, they accepted a basic premise that you could be sure in school and things, everything at least would be consistent with. It certainly wouldn't be hostile. And so we could be lazy, figuring out, well, I don't have to worry about my kids learning this. They're going to pick it up, you know, most of it in society. Those days are gone. Not only will the society teach you nothing about this, it will teach you opposite things. So we're going to have to be far more intentional about how we, how we equip our children, which is our first mission field. And second, we have to be, how are we going to equip the laity to live in that world? And also another reason we have to equip the lady. I think that's what we talked yesterday beautifully when, uh, when, when our when, uh, missioner general was talking to us, is the main goal of people like us who wear collars is to empower the laity for ministry. You know, the biggest mistake, you know clericalism is the idea that we can subcontract. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a business guy, subcontract in the church. And so we, have, so we basically pay people to do our work for us. I can't do it. Subcontract, you do the work for it. Not only is that not true biblically, but let me explain why that's, why that's a silly notion, especially now in autonomy. I worked in the regular world, I mean completely unbelieving world that I worked in. I got to tell you something, I had a lot of street cred about faith. Um, taking nothing away, uh, their view is if you're an unbeliever, sadly, if like William would come uh, and talk to them, they would say, well, duh, that's what he says, like an insurance salesman. The answer, more insurance. That's what he does for a living. You know, what do you expect? I say, dude, you have a job. I don't mean that. This is not my views, obviously, as a priest. But you get out there and say, you've got a real job. I mean, you actually work like us. You pay bills, et cetera. You say, you have a, that's where our people are. We have automatic credibility. I, I still remember what I was saying once. He said, Stephen, I don't get it. You're a really smart guy. But he said, but you actually believe this stuff. And I said, yes, let me tell you more is that gave credibility because they knew that you weren't, quote, in the business. So I'm taking nothing away from being in the business. But there's a special role Our Lady can have that we can't go into because they, it's like the woman at the well. They listened to her when she went home because they knew her. She had cred. And, you know, so we, we need to empower Our Laity because they're the people on the ground. You know what I think about is, as an old guy is I remember once, years and years ago, hearing a guy who would train people in boot camp. But this wasn't just anybody. He had trained people after America's finally, uh, you know, with the, for Normandy, he's saying, we're sending everything that moves you know, to, the, to the war. He said, it's really humbling to know that I'm training people with things that will make the difference in life and death for them. This is not theoretically you have to be trained, get buff, et cetera, learn how to shoot a gun. No, in a few weeks, their life will depend on how well they can shoot that gun, you know, how well they can do these things. And that's what we need to be looking at. These are the people on the front lines. And we want to say, we want them thoroughly equipped to share Jesus. Thoroughly equipped. Okay. Um, now, reasons for hope. Again, to be a Christian is to be a person of hope. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. First of all, Jesus once told us this in a beautiful way that's so true. I actually get weepy when I read it in the scripture. He says, look up and see the harvest. The harvest is white. We have this false idea. And he says, look, he said, look. Pray the, the, uh, the owner to send workers into the harvest. We have the false notion, because the enemy gives it to us, that we're going into this world where we're going to do all this planting. You know, that's our job. We're starting from nothing. We're going to have to find a field. We're going to have to plant it, etc. Jesus said, no, you don't get it. I've already done all the work. That's what we call it provenient grace. It's a matter of theology that no human being has ever converted another human being. 
ever. It's the Holy Spirit of God, and he comes in the strangest places. Isn't that beautiful? Like Nineveh. Look at how he touched the hearts at Nineveh. <laughs> Why would they listen to Jonah? From their point of view, he had a loser god. In the ancient world with multiple gods, is the gods were victorious of wars of the winners. Why would they listen to him? But they did because the Holy Spirit did this. So the idea with the... Uh, so the, the fact is God has already been out there with the world. He's not sending us to plan. He's sending us out to reap what he's already done in ways we... Who, folks, where did the Magi come from? Hello? Who told them? Somehow God did. Yeah. And so uh, where I'm saying the good news for us is realize we're not out there alone. Excuse me, God has been doing this. He saw the people, from, it says predestination, before there was a world, he saw them and loved them. So this is an encouragement. We're not starting from scratch. And things. No, God has done the work. We're there to harvest. We're the best part of the business. We're there for the harvest. So we have to look at that, that we're in for the harvest. Also, folks, I think a lot of the signs we might, um, that, we might, um, that we might get discouraged are, should be signs of encouragement. You know, when you counsel people with, with marriage, I personally, when I've done it, uh, with people after the fact, after marriage, I find anger a healthy sign in this sense. It means there's still something alive. They're still alive. The, the, one of the scariest things I ever saw was taking a counsel with Clearly, they were completely satisfied with the situation. It was ice cold. To figure, that's what a body looks like. That's what a cadaver looks like. And so, folks, when I look at angry people and are you know, shouting and screaming and hate, these are not happy people. You know, that's actually a good sign. That means they know that there's something missing. They are not happy with their lives. <laughs> they are not happy with their lives, meaning... And St. Augustine taught us there's a hole in every human heart that can only be filled by God. Yeah, this is wonderful. You know, when I was in business, as a vendor of services and things, I'd say, who are my potential customers? I have to identify who would be interested. We never do that in church because it's a matter of faith that every human being is one of those. Every human being in their heart. We don't try to sort out our, oh, that's my market. No. The market is every, do they have a pulse? Yes. <laughs> They're our market. <laughs> Oh, okay. And another thing is, an uh, uh, important thing here is to remember, is the importance of the church. Everything, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. That's why Paul says the body of Christ is fully equipped because the gifts for the common good. That's why we do what we do. That's why what Jesus said when there's a harvest out there, what does he say? He doesn't say, go out there and start harvesting. He says, pray that God will send the harvesters. Because that means they come from his church because they come with the full empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Look, you look at some of the preaching I've heard here this weekend and they say, this isn't people getting together having some nice sermon notes. This is God. You know, God has spoken to hearts and we know the difference. And so we have to understand that's where the power is going to come from. So we have to understand this is it's not us is God will do things we know. Like Jesus said, look, when you get arrested and you don't have any education, you're going to appear before these, these very educated people in trial. But don't worry about it. He said, when you come, I'll give you the words. They'll be my words. And they'll be power. They'll convict. They'll convict. Some practical cautions then. Uh, first of all, General Patton, my father served under him in the Second World War. General Patton was famous for saying, I love this, my favorite Patton quote, Fixed fortifications are a monument to the stupidity of mankind. <laughs> he said, I don't want to ever hear that you're holding your positions. I want to hear you're advancing. And this is really important. Is any of you play chess? 
Then I was giving you a chess analogy. Might mean, well, no, you, darling, you don't play chess. You move the pieces. Okay, <laughs> that's a little joke between. Us. <laughs> if you don't know this, if you actually play chess as opposed to seriously play chess, you understand mathematically is the only way to win is by controlling the center of the board. If you try to play it safe, you will lose. You'll be boxed in. You must move forward. Notice Jesus says the, the gates of hell will not prevail. Folks, have any of you had a door fly and hit you? Do we have, is this like a Fox program on when doors attack? No. The fact is the only time you're going to have a door is when you're being, Christ assumes we're on the offensive. And so that's really important. The worst thing we can do is we are, we're on a mission to the world. So the last thing we want to do is circle the wagons. We're on the mission. Is the Father sent me, I send you. So again, there's no place for, there's no place for defense. I don't want to hear General Patton, that great theologian. I don't want to hear you're holding your positions. I want to hear you're advancing. <laughs> In my view, to take it, I think a bishop would say, I want to hear souls are coming to Christ. <laughs> I don't want to hear we haven't lost any more people. I want to hear souls are, there's a harvest of souls are coming to Jesus. Okay. Uh, next thing we have to really be careful of is, is, you know, I love to talk about the dynamic tension. Is the gospel is both prophetic and pastoral. Here's a perfect example of our Lord Jesus. The Lord says to the woman at the well, I don't condemn you. And what's the next thing he says to her? Don't sin anymore. That's the perfect example of what's together. He's saying, I'm not writing you off. The word condemn means to write off. A condemned building is one you can't repair. You just have to tear down. A condemned criminal, God forbid, in an age when people had capital punishment, would be, there's nothing you can do. You just have to kill the guy. There's, it's hopeless. He says, I'm not writing you off. I don't condemn you. But you are. You have a sin issue. So he knew how to combine love and acceptance with telling the truth in love, speaking the truth in love. We're in an age that looks upon any speaking of the truth, prophetically, as being judgmental. We, we, have a, we must speak the truth in love. We have to be, we cannot choose the pastoral as opposed to the prophetic. First of all, it's not generally prophetic. You know, for all those who had serious medical problems, I've got to tell you, I'm sure it was hard sometimes for doctors to tell me really bad news. I'm sure that doesn't make their day cheery. But you know, that was love. That means you could do something about it. <laughs> that, that was the beginning of healing. Or you can have something, I don't want this guy, you know, because often you, you, your aggression comes out of people who bear bad news and things. Imagine a doctor said, I don't want to have that, I don't want to have the song and dance or some hysteria saying, ah, oh, you're fine. Call, let's call it a mosquito bite. Okay. <laughs> that big? Okay, no. <laughs> okay. Three minute warning, Okay. Um, we have another thing that's very important here. Yeah, with, is that um, I want to go to the foundations. Here's what's really important. It ties in with our bishop talked to us last night. Uh, Carl Waitilo, one of the great saints of the 20th century, he was a bishop of Rome, at, you know, John Paul II. He points out, you know, one of the things, we were told that salvation is coming, everything's coming together into God, right? I mean, we're all being drawn into the middle to God. And so everything is about connection. Sin separates us from God and from other people. Now, there are two lifelines to other people. It's our speech. We, how can we possibly communicate? We need to com the gift of being able to speak. And what's the other one? The other uh, one that we have is, is our sexuality is this unique way to connect with that one special person to build a family. It's a way of connection. It's connection of bringing together. John uh, Paul II said the hardest thing of being raised in a communist country was you lie all the time. You're trained to constantly tell whoppers that no one believes, but it's just expected you will lie. And he says you cannot lie without changing who you are. You compromise your ability to communicate anymore. 
And we are now, I've got to tell you, in a culture of lies. When we're calling people with more facial hair than I have women, uh, you know, it says, you know, oh, but that's the kind thing to do. We're, we're lying all the time to be nice. Lying destroys our ability to connect. And anything that, that attacks our sexuality stops our ability to connect. So we have to be on the front lines uh, of this. It's important with people who talk about sexuality, for example, say, why do you people obsess about sex? Because it's so important. But notice every epistle has warnings about immorality. Paul said every other sin is outside the, the, um, the, the body. And I'm going to, since I uh, go right to the conclusion here, is what would our Lord Jesus, who is very much with us here today, but if he were here in the flesh, walked in the room, what would he say? To me, these are words of tremendous hope. He would say, go, make disciples of all nations. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen.